Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Gnode. Coming soon to Patreon for takeoff. I feel like there's often a lot of confusion, or at least like a lack of distinction between wallets and agents. They typically people bucket them together as as one or the other, but um, they're clearly two different things. They clearly have dependencies on each other. Um, but I feel like maybe we need to start separating them a little bit more because each of them have their own exciting roadmaps. Um, and I, I know on the agent side of things. Uh, you have and you continue to put a lot of thought into it. And so I'd be interested from your perspective, kind of um, what are, well, if we could start by defining both of them and then start defining some of the the key differences between them and then perhaps getting into the relationship. Yeah, because I, I don't think you can, <laughs> you can't separate them. So we have to talk about that relationship. And uh, I'll just clarify these two terms, wallet and agent, in the in the in the larger con, you know uh, context of SSI, self sovereign identity, decentralized identity, decentralized trust infrastructure, um, they, you know, they have many meanings in other places. Especially the term agent, it's you know used throughout uh, computing, um, and people talk about you know your browser is a user agent, your email uh, client is a user agent. So so agent. You know, even before we get into mobile agents and all the other kinds of, of agents, intelligent agents, autonomous agents, all that stuff out there. Um, and then, you know, by the way, wallet's been a pretty overloaded term for a long time, too. But if you put them both in the context that we're talking about here, um, I think it, it becomes a lot more uh, concrete. Uh, and uh, the one thing I'll say is the in the industry, as is, is I think, you know, well, Mathieu, the the some companies and some people use the term wallet to mean both, right? They're just, you have a, a mobile wallet and it does all these things, right? And that's the name of the app and it's the name of the function. And they don't separate out or, or you know, uh, separately consider the term agent. Um, I don't currently know of any uh, a company um, and it's possible Avast may end up being uh, a vast, vast, uh, Norton that were uh, now uh, merged um, will be the first to really put the emphasis on agent and uh, and either not mention wallet or put wallet down you know behind the scenes. Um, so I'm just from a terminology standpoint clarifying that the two terms are used and it's very nebulous what people mean. So I will come forth and say um, I'll pair it pretty much what we put in the self-sovereign identity book, which is um, I draw the distinction that the, the wallet is uh, very similar to, to a, you know, to, to a real world, uh, you know, leather wallet. Um, it is the place that um, it's a, it's a, uh, a function typically rooted in the hardware of the device for uh, storing cryptographic keys and other sensitive cryptographic material that's needed to perform a bunch of operations um, under the control of the owner of the wallet. I'm going to use that that term. Yeah, we can talk about users and everything else, but uh, you know, just the way we own wallets in the real world, we literally own a, a piece of leather and we control what happens to the things that go in and out of it. Um, I think that's an accurate way to think about that term as it applies in um, in this branch of um, uh, computing and, and 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 decentralized identity infrastructure. So if 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 that's your definition of the wallet, then it's fairly easy then to say, oh well, what is the agent? Um, the agent is the software that uses the wallet to perform actions on behalf of the owner. And uh, again, if you go back to the real world analogy, uh, a, a wallet is a, a piece of uh, leather with a, a bunch of uh, cards inside of it. Doesn't do anything on its own, right? The agent is the, the person that owns the wallet and decides what goes in and what goes out and when to do that and, and maintains the protection and security of that uh, you know, piece of uh, leather and, and the plastic inside of it. And so, uh, when you're when you're dealing with a uh, a computational wallet, uh, you know, on a device, 
then you need a piece of software that knows how to talk to that wallet that will do so securely on behalf of the user uh, or the owner and, <clears throat> and then performs functions that require the, uh, the wallet. So, so now that gets into, uh, uh, you know, some people are using the term identity agent uh, or, or um, uh, uh, you know, an SSI agent. They're trying to qualify this new kind of agent that performs functions uh, that that require access to and operations that use the, use the wallet and 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 therefore can do a whole a bunch of things that um, the uh, you know other apps that don't have access to the wallet or don't have a wallet function can't do. Um, and as soon as you start going down that road. Uh, the, the other analogy you use there is if, if the wallet is like the hard disk of the computer where you're going to actually store and, and, and hold things in a, in a computer, then the agent is like the operating system and uh, that actually is going to, you know, perform the functions of taking things in and out, you know, writing a file, reading a file, um, supporting applications. But then you've got the whole world of applications. What do you do with that hard disk? Well, the same thing is true in, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, the agent that works with a digital wallet, there are all kinds of things it can now perform because it has access to that underlying, uh, the cryptographic material and operations and can speak to others. So that's sort of a long answer, but I think if we're gonna talk about the different functions of the wallet and the agent, we gotta, we gotta set those ground rules first. I was thinking as you were describing this, like what is the real world equivalent or the physical world equivalent to, to agents? And you, you kind of said it's, it's you uh, in, in, as a person in the real world. You're the one that picks your wallet out. You're the one that decides what to share with who. As more and more things move digital, there's more and more types of interactions that, that you could have. There's also a higher frequency of transactions or interactions I could have because I'm no longer limited to just going in person somewhere. It's almost like if, if I have if I have a twin, I can make them show up to class for me. But it's, a, it's the same type of thing that I can now have multiple things happening on my behalf at once. What becomes interesting as well is um, we had talked about this previously is just the whole idea of uh, personas as well, right? And I really think that's the way that things are going with agents is that, you know, and we see this with some of the biggest companies in the world that they're starting to do stuff like this, of allowing you to really create personas or just um, different categories around your preferences. And so like if anyone listening has an iPhone, um, I like to refer to, and it's been actually great for me using this focus feature that they have in settings. And you could have different settings for your personal life or if you're in work or whatever, based on what types of interactions you wanna have or what you wanna see and not see. So I really see agents moving in that same direction where it's gonna be, a lot more intelligence around your preferences, but it's just, I guess, the equivalent of, of uh, you picking your own preferences in the physical world, but this is just working on your behalf now in the digital world. I com agree completely. I mean, I think one of the most important things that, <clears throat> I mean, what you're referring to there on your iPhone is the, uh, the intelligence uh, that they're trying to add to an operating system, in that case, the phone, to help you, you know, to help it actually adjust to be a more effective tool in your different, and, and one of the, those key things is context, right? What context are you working in? Uh, is, you know, is it work? Is it play? Is it sports? Um, are you traveling? Um, <clears throat> in fact, one of the, one of the really powerful things I have to compliment, I'm also uh, an Apple user, um, as they're trying to, you know, um, come up with, with features, hooks on the latest iPhone. Um, it's the ad they're running where you, you, know, you just see the iPhone, you know, with a bunch of sharded glass around it, just looks like a really great thing. And then you slowly realize, oh, this is an, an iPhone in an accident, a car accident. <clears throat> and then it just, the one tagline, your iPhone actually knows when you've been in an accident and can call uh, for help. Now that, you have just, you know, now that's an agent operating on your behalf. It's uh, an agent in that case, it just happens, you know, it's, it doesn't need a wallet, it has a wallet, right? Uh, but it, it has 
<clears throat> you know, it's rooted in the phone and you trust the phone enough that if that if sends that kind of a signal, that agent's taking what could be a life-saving step on your behalf. Um, so that's a perfect example where it knows context and it knows something that it actually is going to do automatically and you want it to do that because you may not be conscious. You also described the agent being kind of an OS on the wallet, which would kind of look at it as a hard disk. Do you think it's going to be difficult for agent providers or however we want to, there's all sorts of <laughs> stuff to keep up with what the best terms are. And it's a tough thing to describe. I think sometimes in this whole space we're in, people just try to bucket everything into one term and it just never works because it never right. encompasses everything. So I think as, as we start seeing more fragmentation in the space and like smart identity agents start becoming its own category type of thing, it'll be a bit easier to classify these things. But do you see it being difficult for uh, wallet providers that are, if, if we think of our agent providers, if the agent is the OS, ultimately you're still sitting on the other OS. We're just describing the Apple OS who perhaps causes um, some issues or roadblocks for another one sitting on the top. And um, do, you, do you think it's gonna be difficult for agent providers on top of an OS like Apple or, or Android to, to compete? with Apple and Android with the type of context that they're able to, to, to pick up and then give you the, the right set of options that you're looking for? I'll give you the world's shortest answer, yes. I think it's, it's, it's a real challenge there um, because the, um, the deeper we get, the more advanced we get in terms of uh, the technology we're using every day in our digital lives. And, uh, you know, I think, the, you know, we all know that uh, just how much, for instance, a smartphone has transformed uh, our daily life. And by that, I don't mean every person in the world, not everyone has a smartphone. And there's, you know, this, it, it, it in my opinion, has actually made the digital divide much deeper and wider. Um, hopefully that's something, you know, that, that we can, and, and some places in the world are doing things about that. But um, the smartphone is a tool now that we can carry it with us, that it knows location, um, that it, uh, you know, uh, can, can, you know, be tied to so many other devices that we're using, uh, and, you know, and now to smart watches, um, <clears throat> the more we rely on those digital tools in our lives, the more, uh, powerful the position is of the, of the, uh, OS vendors, often called the platform providers, and there are all kinds of platform providers, but here we're talking specifically about, you know, device OS platform providers, especially mobile. But, um, you know, in the case of Apple, it's mobile, it's desktop, it's tablet, it's smartwatch, it's, it's, it's all those things. Um, <clears throat> they are an extremely powerful position. And uh, I think when it comes to uh, digital identity and digital trust infrastructure, it is of paramount importance that the power that they have, they not be able to wield that in a way that will um, uh, be anti-competitive in that market. Um, it is a, it's a fundamental reason, <clears throat> for example, that uh, uh, we now have the, an initiative that the Linux Foundation announced uh, last month, uh, the intent to form the Open Wallet Foundation so that we can have, uh, uh, you know, open source code, you might call it, quote, a Linux for digital wallets, uh, a widely used uh, OS that um, uh, a wallet, you know, call it a, a, a wallet code, wallet module uh, that um, can be used that will have the same access to uh, the operating system, to, you know, secure system functions, a secure enclave on a mobile device. Um, as the platform providers have. Um, and that, you know, the closer we can get to a true level playing field, um, the, more, the better it is it will be for, for, for all of us. I actually believe it's even the best thing for the platform companies, um, uh, you know, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but I think we really need that level playing field if we're going to see um, the, the, the full potential uh, of those devices to help us develop and use 
decentralized digital trust infrastructure. That's a good point about it being valuable for the OS providers as well, because they kind of imagine it like uh, when, when Apple decided to open up an app store or companies like Facebook decide to open up um, tools for developers to build games and stuff like that, it just continues to add stickiness to, to the platform altogether. So it's just kind of that next level of allowing developers or these app companies to gain access to more things, which in turn will add more privacy and more benefits to their users, creating downstream even more stickiness to Apple or Google or whoever uh, is the, the big player of the time. Yeah, it's also, it's important to point out that they're already, uh, you know, governments, regulatory jurisdictions around the world that are saying, wait a minute, this is too important. Uh, this the digital infrastructure is is you know becoming essential from an economic standpoint, uh, you know from political um, and, and even you know security and uh, standpoint. Um, <clears throat> we have to have um, you know access, open access, and, and and open standards for these things that produce a level playing field. Uh, and one that you know the governments can uh, you know access and use as well as everyone else, um, and 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 this is one of the reasons, uh, as I know you're you're well aware that the EU you know uh, is has started it's uh, it's almost 18 months ago now the European Digital Identity uh, uh, Wallet Initiative, and is funding that to the tune of 26 million euro, million euros for a, a four-year budget uh for for building an open source code base for uh european uh for digital wallets to be used by um uh, eu citizens and issued either by eu member states or or by their you know their their des designates or by by uh providers that they certify um they'll i think all those uh wallets will be uh certified in the eu um <clears throat> which again also ties back into our earlier point about they're just simply calling them identity wallets, right? They're, they're, they're sort of pulling the agent wallet uh, function together and talking about, oh, it's an identity wallet. And, and that's the new tool uh, that they will be using because of their infrastructure with the IDES. Um, you know, and they're not the only ones, of course. Uh, Canadian provinces, uh, I, you know, you, you know well as a Canadian, uh, they're also leading the way in that, BC Gov and Ontario and, and Quebec. And uh, other countries, uh, we, we, uh, uh, we've done work at, at Avast with uh, Bhutan. It wants to put in place an entire um, SSA-based infrastructure based on digital wallets and issuers, holders, uh, verifiers of, of digital credentials. Uh, so this is really, you know, this is going to become part of our overall global digital infrastructure. And it's really critical that therefore it, it be something like the internet that's accessible to all. One of the things mentioning Europe here, I've been in Europe for a few weeks now. And one of the things that I've, uh, I feel like hasn't necessarily got the same adoption in Canada or, but at least Canada has more adoption in this than the US has is um, the top to pay. And it's just incredible here, like the amount of toll routes that I've, I've had to drive through and you just pull up to the gate, tap one euro, whatever. It's very easy. The gate opens, you go park in a, in a parking garage. It's the same thing. You just, as you're exiting the garage, you just tap to pay. And it's just, it's very quick and it keeps things flowing. And I, I guess like I, I realized the power of NFC, but I haven't really like, I don't know. It hadn't hit me as much as it did just being here over the past few weeks that like, wow, this thing is just like reduced so much friction in uh, just day-to-day -day living. It's just so easy. And that kind of got me thinking like, again, it's NFC implemented on, on our OS devices that allow us through these like Apple pay wallets, for example, to, to do these things, or just even through, through the credit cards. I look at NFC as basically facilitating security and trust for close distance transactions. Because I, I have to have something with me. I need to be physically there and I need to actually like interact with something. But you, you just trust that it works. Like if, if I'm at a parking garage or going through a, a toll, a toll booth, like I never I never think that something wrong is gonna happen. It's just it just works, it's easy, and, and I trust it. 
So that got me thinking, if NFC really facilitates security and trust for close distance, do uh, protocols like Didcom are the objective of these to then create trust for <laughs> further distance or, or longer distance? Would you say that's one of the, the main goals of Didcom to bring trust from a distance? Absolutely. I, in fact, you, 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 you said it perfectly. Your analogy of the kind of uh, facilitation of trust at NFC because of the proximity, it's a fantastic analogy. In fact, I'm going to start using that. Uh, I will attribute it to Mathieu because I will say, oh, yeah, what, what the kind of trust that you could have in, in like a, a Google Pay or Apple Pay transaction, a contactless transaction with your phone is exactly what the combination of point out of digital wallet, digital agent, and a protocol like Didcom can provide now at distance uh, and at scale, right? If we could do the same thing with essentially, I mean, literally imagine being able to do what feels like Apple Pay with any, you know, any website, um, any, any kind of transaction you're doing remotely. Um, and I not only hear you, but ha having spent five weeks in Europe um, at the, uh, over about about a month and a half ago, and switched over from using you know a credit card in person uh, in the U.S. is is still sort of the de facto to ninety nine percent of the transactions were uh, contactless. Um, you know, uh, in my case, Apple Pay. Um, I too was just like, this is absolutely what has to happen, and uh, it, it totally does. And of course, you are using a wallet every time you do that. It's just that those are, that's the payment function of a wallet versus the identity function of a wallet. And I'm not telling anyone anything new. Those two are absolutely coming together. Um, in fact, in the Open Wallet Foundation, they've explicitly said uh, identity, payment, and the third category is utility, meaning your hotel key, your car key, whatever you might need an electronic uh, key for just to unlock it, not necessarily pay for it or prove anything to it. Um, all of those are in scope, and I believe that's really the definition of those are the three things you want a digital wallet to do, and you'll be using, you know, countless times a day in our digital lives here soon. What does Didcom do better than other protocols or, or mechanisms of, of exchanging data? And one, one topic that comes up a lot is um, the open ID topic. And... There's a lot of um, infrastructure that uses it already. There's a, there's a lot of push and uh, political push behind it. But maybe we started the conversation today just kind of contrasting wallets and agents. How, how would you contrast something like Didcom and OpenID or perhaps other protocols just to differentiate? Because I'm personally, I, I sometimes don't understand why there's so much uh, tribalism <laughs> between the different different protocols or things like uh if you look on the internet today there's there's tons tons of protocols and things mashed together to make it work and i, I believe the same is going to be true in digital identity and some of these different standards or protocols um, are better for certain use cases over others so i, I would be interested from your perspective to maybe um, go a bit deeper into didcom but maybe contrast it against other stuff like open id um and I don't know if you share the same opinion as me, but it would be interesting to to hear how you look at these things uh, together or differently or or however you do. Oh, that's a really good one. We could spend the whole rest of the uh, uh, of the of the podcast on that one, but I'll, I'll try and keep my answer as as crisp as I can. <laughs> the perspective, first, the overall perspective I'll bring on that is the one uh, that's the reason I've been a, a steering member of Trust over IP since it. Uh, started about 18 months ago. I, excuse me, 20. No, that would be. Uh, 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 I think it's close to two years. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. a little over. It's getting close to two and a half years now. That's what I meant. Wow. wow. <laughs> and uh, and 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 you know that in in one sentence, the whole reason we started Trust Over IP is we we said we need a protocol stack for digital trust. That is um, the the sort of the direct analogy uh, or analog of the. Uh, TCP IP protocol stack for, um, uh, for, for, for data sharing, for, for global network interoperability of, at, at the data packet level. Um, it's very widely recognized that 
the architecture of the internet did not uh, put you know trust uh, into scope. It was not something. A, it was just uh, too hard of a problem uh, for what they had to solve back at that time. And B, it was not a pressing problem because that was not uh, anticipated. Just they didn't anticipate it was going to grow into the kind of global network where you know not everyone knew everyone. So. Um, so it's understandable that it wasn't tackled there, but now, uh, you know, our feeling is we need a protocol stack that can do exactly what you just, uh, described, uh, trust at a distance, right? It was literally John Jordan, who's, um, uh, the executive director of the digital trust services in, in the province of British Columbia in Canada, who coined the term trust over IP. We need to be able to do trust over, you know, the IP protocol over a network the same way, he really named that for voice over IP, right? The same way we said, oh, we can take uh, specialized networks that were designed just to do voice alone, like, you know, uh, the, uh, the POTS network, Plano Telephone Network, and now we can adapt it to a data network uh, and do it just, you know, at scale and then more securely and many other things that come from turning a protocol to, to digital. So anyway, my perspective on this is coming from the work we're doing on the uh, Trust OIP uh, protocol stack. Uh, good news coming up here. Our goal at uh, what we call the Technology Architecture um, uh, Task Force, uh, whose meeting uh, weekly meetings are on Thursdays. We just had one this morning, um, is to uh, release the first uh, public review draft of the, of the Trust OIP Technology Architecture spec at Internet Identity Workshop coming up here in three weeks. So um, we, uh, you know, this is really, you know, hot off the presses. We've been working on this for quite a while. And now to answer your question about the difference between a protocol like DIDCOM and a protocol like OpenID, which I want to clarify, there's been a number of evolutionary steps. I was one of the original board members at OpenID when we were working on, at that time, really OpenID 2, because OpenID 1, was from a uh, was a single design that there were you know around this idea of hey user centric identity you could own your own URL um, there were actually three three other approaches to that and all four of us came together to say okay let's OpenID is the best name of the four let's adopt that and let's get our architectures together and that became OpenID 2.0 and then that grew for a while and then it hit a wall and. Uh, you know the the large um, the social networks and social login was 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 coming on, so we had to evolve the whole thing into an OAuth based protocol, what's now known as OpenID Connect. That's now received very wide scale adoption, but along came verifiable credentials and digital wallets. OpenID is a federation protocol, right? You talk to an identity provider as a server and the the relying party that you're talking to connects and you're redirected to talk to that party it's it's based on the you know classic uh, identity federation architectures that we've had several generations of protocols for <clears throat> when we move to digital wallets and digital credentials we go to a different architecture right and what's happened is the open id foundation said ah we need to figure out now with digital uh wallets digital credentials how we are going to adapt the open id protocol to to, to, you know, to speak those, and that is the new OpenID for VC para protocols for issuing and uh, for uh, presenting um, a, uh, a digital credential. And I think uh, I know the, the, the two leads of that, Christina Yasuda from Microsoft and Torsten Lauterstadt from yes.com, <clears throat> and the whole work at OpenID, I think they've really done really good work on those protocols. I recommend the uh, the, the white paper they put out about them and the specs. And uh, I think they're, they're going to be widely adopted. Uh, I know they're sort of one of the key elements that I think the EU digital identity wallet is, is counting on in terms of an exchange protocol for verifiable credentials. Okay. <clears throat> so the, the, the summary answer I give you is the key difference between a protocol like that that's designed specifically to solve um, a, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, call it an identification and, and uh, authentication problem using either um, 
you know, a federation architecture or now going into uh, a, a credential exchange um, versus a protocol designed to say, oh, we need, uh, we need a trust layer. We need a standard way for any two endpoints to establish trust between them and then build on that uh, trust with higher level protocols. That's the design from which, uh, that, that, that's the de <clears throat> design paradigm, design uh, goals for um, Didcom. I'm not saying Didcom's the only protocol stack that, that did that. There are others, uh, I often refer to the carry stack. Um, similarly, uh, but they started from, you know, literally solving a different problem, which is how do two endpoints connect, establish trust, and then be able to proceed with other protocols that build on that base um, uh, uh, protocol, which I will give a generic name to, we call it a trust spanning protocol. And the, with a the trust RP stack, it follows an hourglass model, just like the, the TCPIP stack. And that means there's a single protocol at the center of the hourglass that is how you get the interoperability between the supporting protocols and the higher level protocols. With the TCPIP stack, that protocol is the IP protocol. And that's how you get the addressing and any two IP uh, addressable devices can connect. And then they move up to higher level protocols like SMTP for email or HTTP for, uh, you know, for web. <clears throat> if we do the same thing for trust, or for, for, for a, uh, you know, a, a, a universal trust infrastructure, we need that trust spanning protocol uh, that establishes a, a, a cryptographically uh, secure connection between those two endpoints, any two endpoints, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of device, just like with the, uh, with the internet, it, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a mobile phone or you're a server or you're a, you know, a blockchain, you're still connecting with an IP address. Well, <clears throat> with that, with the trust spanning protocol, we believe the thing need to connect to is most broadly called a verifiable identifier. And I use that term because a decentralized identifier is one type of verifiable identifier. And there are subcategories of decentralized identifiers that can get you progressively, call it stronger uh, trust or characteristics. But they're also, um, even though folks know that I'm a, you know, a DID nut, uh, have been for a long time, um, there are other forms of verifiable identifiers, meaning you can cryptographically verify control of that identifier, and they exist now. An HTTPS endpoint, uh, you know, a, a, a server you connect to on the internet that can show you a, a, um, an SSL or TLS certificate um, is a verifiable identifier of a kind, and we don't think those should be excluded. So I know I'm giving a long answer, but you asked a really hard question. The protocols that are designed to say, we're generically going to just solve the problem of connecting to endpoints that have verifiable identifiers in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion is a quite a different architecture than a protocol designed to say, oh, we're going to solve a uh, uh, client-to-server authentication, um, um, uh, identification authentication challenge. So the OpenID, family of protocols that were designed to do that, a specialized family of protocols, they should work within a more generic infrastructure. Um, but DIDCOM, as an example of, you know, and the name, by the way, did to did right? did to did communications. That was the whole uh, origin of it. That solves a much more generic and, uh, and universal problem. And to, to contrast, the Hyperledger Aries community said, oh, well, if we need to exchange both issue and present verifiable credentials, we'll start with DIDCOM and we'll build what they call co-protocols on top of that to say, all right, well, now the specific thing we need to exchange once we've established that connection is uh, issuance or presentation of verifiable credentials. Those became the Aries protocols. So if you look at what, what uh, OpenID for VC protocols do and what the ARIES um, uh, credential exchange protocols do, they're not that different, right? They, they ultimately accomplish the same uh, goal. But with the ARIES protocols, the DIDCOM substrate 
can be a substrate for many other trusted exchange protocols, payment, data sharing, uh, you know, there's there's just all kinds of other um, uh, kinds of what we call trust tasks at Trust over IP that can be built on top of that base layer, which the open ID as a specialized protocol was never designed to do those other things. Uh, secure chat, you know, just just all all, all those other uh, uh, kinds of tasks that you'd want a uh, a common trust banning protocol to be the basis for. That was a much longer answer than you probably wanted, but you asked a really hard question. In your answer, is it that in the hourglass of trust, you described the hourglass of TCP IP, where IP kind of sits at the center, and then there's protocols that work on top or below, on top of it, uh, you can mix and match. Is that kind of the same thing being, whether it's DIDCOM or Carry or one of these, just very general protocols that allows to establish trust between a client and a client? That needs to be at the center because then you'll have more specialized stuff like a client to server, like using OpenID for VC that would leverage DIDCOM, but it would add some level of federation on top of it. Am, am I butchering that? Yes. Or no, is, you're is not that... butchering. You're exactly right. The The general um, uh, the principle of the hourglass design for protocol st stacks, and I'm going to put an advertisement in uh, for the uh, Trust Over P published something called the uh, uh, Design Principles for the Trust Over P Stack. We spent about nine months on what ended up being 17 design principles before we tackled the job of saying, okay, now let's apply those to come out with Trust Over P architecture. And uh, among those, uh, I'd say the end-to-end -end principle, which is the basic principle of the internet, that any two endpoints should be able to connect. Uh, and the, that and the hourglass principle of, the, of that hourglass shape of the protocol stack with the one uh, uh, spanning protocol in the middle, um, th those are the two primary design principles that inform the structure. And what's below that uh that that neck of the hourglass are called supporting protocols what's above it are called supported protocols and uh, with the internet the supporting protocols below ip are all the protocols used to move bits around on a specific network like you know ethernet um and, but above it are all of the internet uh, above the ip layer you got tcp and udp you've got hvp and smtp and and uh you know all all the um <clears throat> other higher level protocols that get more specific and specialized what we're doing is we're applying that same model that same hourglass model and saying we need one trust spanning protocol that uh that just solves that problem of the uh uh establishing we don't actually use the word secure uh, it's an authentic connection uh that where, where both parties can authenticate the that the identifier that they're talking to on the other end right and that identifier by the way this is really a critical point all you're authenticating with a trust spanning protocol is that you are talking to the uh, party controlling that other identifier you're not that's that's not in any way, for instance, uh, where you and I, uh, Matthew, that um, it's Matthew Glott, right? Or it's Drummond Reed. All it would be is that my did and your did are the two that are, you know, actually talking over this, right? So what it does is it separates the problem of, okay, we've got a cryptographically verifiable connection now. Standard way to do that, any two devices. Now, how do they go to a higher level of trust? Well, if we'd never met each other before, I might go, well, Matthew, can you show me a verifiable credential or two or three or whatever, right? Or can you prove to me that you know someone else I know, right? Eh, all kinds of different kinds of what we call trust tasks can now be accomplished on that really basic, um, uh, you know, on, on what we've established that basically secure, uh, authentic connection between the two of our um uh dids wallets and agents right now they've got that verified connection and we can build the higher le levels of trust and of course you can see oh well that's two people but what about a person to uh, uh a website uh, you know a bank uh, a shopping site an auction site how about a person to their car to the refrigerator right to their uh uh you know to to, to whatever so it's 
it's not specific to people. It's not specific to organizations or uh, or devices. It's the same, just like IP protocol works everywhere. We believe the the uh, trust over IP spanning layer protocol needs to work everywhere. I, I always thought that the trust over IP dual stack, the, the four layers, dual stack being the technology and governance applied more broadly than just in identity credentials. It was kind of just the first use case for it. And you, you need a use case to start building things around or else <laughs> you, you're not you're not solving any problems. Um, and Daniel Hardman had given a presentation at a Trust Over IPL members probably a year ago um, talking about how he saw the Trust Over IP stack being applied to um, to money, basically. Just as he, he was looking more into central bank digital currencies, he saw how the same framework applied quite nicely to the use case of digital currencies. Um, with all of the uh, craziness happening in social media, um, that, that is another use case for it, where I, I think and you're seeing new advancements happening now through uh, companies uh, like Block in particular, where there's a vision to make the base of social media just more of a protocol. And I, I kind of thinking that, you know what, like the trust over IP stack is probably a good solution for that too. Um, how, first of all, is that accurate? And uh, second of all, like how, how widely known is this in different verticals like social media or like payments? Is this being looked at right now as, hey, uh, these four layers, however I fill these layers up are, are a good framework for, for my particular use case? So the answer is yes, it's absolutely accurate, totally right on. And B, it is almost not known uh, at all, um, in, in part because uh, Trust and Review Foundation hasn't you know, put a deliverable out there saying, here's the architecture for the stack and here is in fact how general it is and how many different uh, kinds of, of trust tasks it can be applied to. Um, <clears throat> That's why we're trying to get, you know, now the, the technical architecture spec out. And uh, I will be holding, we just discussed it this morning. I, I, I thought there'll be a number of us from Trust of RP there at IEW coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and I will absolutely be calling a session on the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Trust uh, a spanning layer protocol and, 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 and the uh, Trust task can, that can be built above it. Um, and in fact, I will be wanting, let me make this point, uh, Matthew, that, that, you know, a trust banning protocol that meets the requirements that we have, uh, and you'll see them in, in, in the diet right now, the 30 requirements, uh, that we identify architectural requirements for the trust or IP stack divided across the four layers. Um, interestingly enough, I think it's roughly 70% of those requirements apply to layer two, the trust banning protocol that's the hero that's the, the essence of the story i don't believe sitting here today that any one protocol that has been developed actually meets all those requirements today probably didcom is probably the closest uh but i've had some in-depth discussions with daniel hardman and it doesn't actually uh, necessarily meet all of them or you could also say it may meet all of them but be thicker and heavier than it needs to be and what you want is the trust spanning layer or any spanning layer on a stack to be as thin as you can make it, but no thinner, because then it will last, it'll have the longest lifetime. It'll, it'll you know, be the most useful in general. And that's what you need from the spanning layer. So the session, I'm going to call it IAW. <clears throat> and uh, I hope you will be there. Are you going to be at IAW? I will try. Good. If it's possible, it's going to be to basically, you know, invite Daniel and Sam Curran and all the, the um, uh, Steve McCown, the Didcom uh, folks, Sam uh, Smith and and uh, Phil Fairheiler, Kevin Griffin, the, the, the uh, I'll call it the Kerry Stack folks, uh, but also uh, Daniel Buckner and the uh, uh, the DWN, uh, Decentralized Web Node folks. All of them have candidates for that. All of them have good, powerful uh, pieces of 
you know, of the stack and contributions to that uh, spanning layer protocol. And so <clears throat> since you're asking me about it, I really want to see that convergence because I will, you know, put it on record here as soon as we have that convergence and 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 applications, uh, uh, you know, and implementations uh, of that protocol start to uh, to move out, I think we will start the same kind of network effect that grew the internet, right? We will that that trust layer will begin to emerge in a way that we've only, you know, been able to sort of poke at and get started on, but it will really take off. One of the other things I've that has crossed my mind, I guess, over the past couple of years as we've built, let's just call them SSI products and just thinking about how you would design the user experience around these products. One of the, I guess, comparing apps that, that we've looked at are were email, like email applications. And um, email uses all sorts of different protocols, um, post office protocol, uh, IMAP, Internet Message Access Protocol, SMTP, we named a few already today, um, which means that any email client that supports these protocols basically could be used to send emails, which is why if you're using Outlook and I'm using Gmail or name, name your client, we could send emails, we could send files to each other, we, we could do all sorts of, of things like that. Um, so I, I drew some similarities there between email and SSI. One, one of the other things is that email is an asynchronous productivity tool. I look at digital wallets kind of as, as the same thing. Um, then the third thing, just thinking about how you get the same, how you get the network effects. And that's why I'm kind of going down the line of email because email obviously got the, got the network effect at some point. Um, email is not always used directly in systems. Um, it's used sometimes to get alerts for processes that are happening. Like often if there are a line of business applications being used, email is kind of something that's complementary to that, to, to inform you of stuff that's happening, to make you go and, and do something. Or maybe it's information is exchanged via email before actually going and executing something in a line of business application. So to summarize, both SSI and emails use different protocols. Any client could exchange data with any other client. They're both asynchronous. Um, and I don't think they will both replace line of business systems for, for, for everything. Um, having been in the standard space for, for as long as you've been, do, do you think there are some key learnings that could be taken from email and just understanding how email started gaining adoption. Are there parallels that we could look at between these two, considering that there are quite a few similarities? If I'm properly track the number of questions, the answer is yes, 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 and <laughs> yes. I love the analogy with email. I believe it's deeply and profoundly true. Um, email is the default, uh, call it, human to human, uh, but also in many cases, not all cases, many cases, uh, even machine to machine, you know, communications, uh, you know, at, at, at a message level versus a packet level, you know, the packet level that, that uh, TCP IP or the IP protocol, uh, you know, handles. And uh, there's so many, so many ways, there's a brilliant paper, I'm trying to remember, I know Phil Windley has the link to it, uh, that I, I think um, there was a group at HP, uh, oh, Alan, I'm trying to remember um, uh, his name, he's a, a regular at uh, um, IW. Um, but anyway, they wrote and they basically compared all the other uh, sort of uh, types of collaboration tools that had that have evolved out there, you know, to, 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 to uh, against email and sort of a feature matrix and it was it was stunning to see how useful and general and adaptable email is uh, compared to all those other tools. None of them even came close to doing all the things that email does, just because it is basically a simple and general. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember when um, the, you know the the MIME type um, extensions were finally standardized, and the email clients caught on, and now you can basically move around any kind of a file. 
and all of the things that could then that you know that could then be built on top of that, right? And you and you went from you know the early mail clients. I, mean, I was a Eudora user at one time. I loved Eudora, but Eudora would look like a dinosaur compared to you know things like Gmail and Outlook today, right? Um, so I. I love that analogy. I, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And uh, there are those, uh, you know, call it over on the far edge that believe that uh, the protocol stack we're trying to develop with Trust RP and what will become the trust spanning protocol and, and the protocols on top of that will over time, and I'm talking 40 or 50 years, you know, replace SMTP because it's never, it has not been possible so far to really solve the trust uh, and security problems with uh, SMTP as a protocol <clears throat> for, you know, for just those similar reasons. Um, but if you start with something that actually always establishes an authentic connection for any kind of exchange, then, then we can have that basis. And then whether it's asynchronous or synchronous, I mean, one of the cool things about uh, DIDCOM, for example, is you can do asynchronous communications, but you can also do real-time chat, right? And uh, I don't know about you, I love the fact that I can use email everywhere. Show me the secure chat that I can use everywhere. You know, it's, it's driving me nuts right now. I think I have nine different, uh, uh, you know, ways to communicate securely with someone, but I have to fall back to email to say, by the way, how are we gonna do that? Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To step to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glode on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.